Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone here in the auditorium and in the venue today. How beautiful it is to hear the Word of God read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we consider the beauty of what God intends for the church. Would you pray with me as we begin? Gracious God in heaven, how we thank you for this gift which you have given to us, which is called the body of Christ. As we gather together today as one body of Christ, we acknowledge that you've been generous to us to give us such a wonderful local community here at Carney E. Free. And we say to you, thank you. Father, many of us have come into this room today with a variety of heartaches and burdens in our lives, and so we ask for your help there. We invite your presence to us where we feel weak, and we invite your presence to us to teach us from your word that we might understand more of this gift that is a relationship with the church. We recognize that the church has fallen on hard times in many ways, but we also know it's an instrument of incredible blessing from our good God to each of us. So would you teach us today through your scriptures that we might receive this wonderful blessing from your good and gracious hand. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen. Her name is Karina. And she's a struggling single mother with two kids aged 10 and 4. She works two or three days a week if she's fortunate, cleaning businesses and storefronts. She's able to cobble together about 15 to 20 dollars a week on those days of work that she finds such that she can support her two kids and put enough food on the table each day. Even so, Karina holds her head high. She lives in a seven-by-seven house with a tin roof and wooden planks under her feet. She holds her head high, and she knows it's her job to provide for her kids, and she's doing all that she can. I met Karina last week on a trip to Ecuador with Compassion International, and Karina's one of the fortunate ones in her village in that one of her two kids is sponsored by a sponsor in San Diego with Compassion International who spent, sends $35 a month or so to help provide for this little girl's needs. And with that $35 a month, this little girl gets an extra meal each day and medical checkups and academic assistance and spiritual care as this organization seeks to release children from poverty in the name of Jesus. As a couple pastors and I went into Karina's 7 by 7 house, we got to know this beautiful woman in her context. And we sat down to hear a bit of her story and listened as she shared some of her hopes and her dreams for her kids. And we asked her how we might pray for her. And she, of course, noted that the tin roof was flapping up and down, which we saw, and whenever the winds came and then the monsoon rains came in, everything in that house, the one mattress and all the clothes would get wet. So 
She asked for help with that. But then she broke down as she asked for the bigger need, which was, in this case, for a mentor. She said she's lonely. And we asked if she's part of the new church in town that's working with Compassion International. And she said, well, I'm attending the new church in town, but this is all quite new to me. I don't know anything about this Jesus. I don't know anything about this local church, but I'm open to it because I see the difference it's making in my four-year-old girl who is receiving such care for them each day. And so I had the beautiful opportunity to share with her the basics of the gospel message, that she is indeed loved by God, that in spite of any previous mistakes though, that she's made, she is loved by God. That she is fearfully and wonderfully made, as the scriptures say. That she was knit together in her mother's womb. And then we went over to Jeremiah 29, 11, that God still has a plan for you, Karina. He's not done with you, Karina. He's got a, a future and a hope for you, Karina. And this is the good news of the gospel, his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness, yes, to you. And she wept. Before her eyes, she became a puddle of big alligator tears. And so we hugged her and we cried together with her and we prayed over her. And, and fittingly, after a wonderful home visit, we walked about a mile through her village back to that local church. And she came with us to cook us a meal at lunchtime. In addition to her two days of working each week, she gets to volunteer at the Compassion site, preparing these meals for the kids. And on this day, she got to prepare a meal for the pastors. You see, this is what God has in mind, giving and receiving through the local church an instrument of God's blessing to her life and to our lives. Today we conclude this sermon series titled Social, in which we've looked at these most important relationships that God has given us. And be it parenting or marriage or friendship, we've looked at a number of different relationships that God has given us and what the book of Proverbs has to say about these most important relationships as we seek the Bible's advice about how we live into all that God has given us. Last week, well, we even looked at singleness and the gift that can be singleness and the priority of loving each other as one family of God in the local church. And didn't Pastor Kevin do a fantastic job in that message? So blessed by that message for the singles in our community. Yeah, we can clap for that. That was wonderful. It was a great, great message on the fact that we are one family of God. And, and I, I recognize that this message on our relationship with the church is somewhat less intuitive than those other relationships. But I would like to make the argument today that your relationship with the local church is every bit as critical to the health of your life as is these other relationships that we've noted over these past six weeks. The local church has fallen on hard times in America, if you haven't yet noticed. There was a survey done a number of years ago by the George Barner Research Group, which is kind of like the Gallup polls, and they interviewed hundreds of thousands of Christians, took a, a sample of why many Christians are no longer going to church. 
And they identified self-professing Christians who believed in biblical orthodoxy. They believed that the Bible is authoritative over their lives, for example. They believed that salvation is by grace through faith, a gift from God. They believed that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They believe all of those things, but they don't want anything to do with the church. They're not attending a church, and they ain't looking either. And the Barna Group identified that in America today, there are 8 million million self-professing Christians who hold to all of those views that I just noted, but don't see any need for the church in their lives at all. Numerous studies indicate that every year, fewer and fewer college freshmen have any religious preference or desire. It's interesting, as you read these studies, that the very same studies will indicate that the very same college freshmen, as they are decreasing in religious preference and desire, so also their emotional health is plummeting. And depression amongst college freshmen and sophomores is skyrocketing. That's another topic for another day, but interesting correlation there. It's not just young people who are abandoning the church. I've known busters from the buster generation who have said, no, I really don't care for the local assembly. I will do my hour of power on television. Do you remember the hour of power with Robert Schuller? Remember that? I mean, that was marketed to the busters. Or I've known a number of baby boomer parents who have kids that are teenagers now, and they say, you know, I'm kind of tired of the local church. I will just do church as an immediate family. We'll do our own thing in our own home, and maybe you know some of those folks as well. Many in my generation, which is Generation X, and many others who are millennials, kind of describe themselves as nomads today, wandering. One foot in the church, one foot in the culture, not really sure where they belong, liking the church in some ways, not liking it in other ways, and kind of drifting from the church for months and sometimes even years at a time. I'm sure you know many of these folks. You may even be one of them today who happened to drift into the church today, and we're so glad that you're here. You you could be in the spot that you say, you know, I really don't feel like church is very important to me, but I needed to come today, and we're so glad that you're here. Many folks in this cohort, these 8 million people, say uh, they don't care for the church because it's a bunch of, what is it? Hypocrites, a bunch of hypocrites. To which I say, yes, it is. I look in the mirror every day. I unfortunately am one of them. And it's too political, and it's too old-fashioned, and it's too exclusive in a way that Jesus just didn't seem to be. And is the church big enough to deal with my doubts? Let me say today, we'll address that in these coming weeks, in this coming series, but faith by nature will include some doubt. Whatever your fears are of the church, and they are many, uh, I recognize that frequently, though they have been earned, but even so, the church is God's instrument for redemptive blessing in the world. Uh, let me do just a little bit of theology with you. As we talk about our relationship with the church, it's critically important that, that we know what we mean by the universal church and the local church. So if you're taking notes, please take note of this. This is a juicy little bit of theology, and it's worthy of the moments though, that we take here. The church is, big C, capital C, church is the universal 
community of people, the universal body of believers who have been reconciled to God through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, it's, it's the universal body of believers made up of different denominations and different names, different addresses on the, on the marquee outside, different races and ethnic groups across all of history who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have repented to Christ, who trust their lives to Him. And so we give thanks for the universal church that is made up of many local churches. When we talk about the universal Big C Church, we're saying we, we're so thankful for that little church in Ecuador with 250 people in it. We're so thankful for First Baptist down the street, and we're so thankful for uh, Grace Fellowship and for New Life and for Trinity Presbyterian and the different churches that call on the name of Christ and ascribe to that basic sense of Christian orthodoxy, these core beliefs. This is what Jesus promised to build. He said, I will build my church, Big C Church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not the worst evil will ever prevail against the church. This is what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 when he said, I pray that they all may be one. Boy, that didn't happen, did it? But that was Jesus' prayer, and it's still his prayer today. That we would all be one. As we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have been one since time immemorial. And we created them in our image that they would be unified under me. That's the universal church. Now, what is the local church? The local church is a, here's a definition, it is a messy community of people. Can I get an amen? It's a messy community of people, united by the Holy Spirit, bonded through suffering, and committed to growing together. I'd like to unpack that for the moments that we have remaining uh, this morning. It's a messy community of people united by the Holy Spirit, bonded through the instrument of suffering, and committed to growing together. The New Testament explicitly teaches that we are members of this universal Big C Church as we repent of our sins and place our faith, place our trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. If you haven't yet done that today, you'd be invited to do that today. There's no better day than today to make that decision. But, but that's the universal church, is those who are united by Him by repentance and belief in Christ. And it's made up of many small, small C churches, local churches. And the explicit teaching of the New Testament is that while we are members of the universal church, we are to be committed participants in one local church. Committed participants who make a difference, well, wherever God calls us. Now the problem with that, of course, is that little two-syllable word that I note in the first definition, it's people, right? I mean, the church would be great if it wasn't for all the people with bad hair and bad breath and lots of bad habits, like me and you, come on, no offense, you too. We all have this. It's made up of messy people. The church is, first and foremost, a mess. And again, this is why church on TV or church on the internet is such a brilliant idea. You don't have to deal with any people. But you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, you see that God has a different 
idea in mind. If you're not there already, please join me in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll look at a number of verses here as we just seek to understand what God has intended for his family in the local church. And again, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a very messy, divided, splintering church in Corinth. And Corinth, if you're familiar, had all kinds of problems in it. I mean, they had lust, and they had greed, and there was even incest, incest in the church. But the worst problem in the church in Corinth was, can you guess? It's pride. Unquestionably, it was the worst problem in the church in Corinth, that people received certain gifts, and they said, oh, look how much God has given me, and how much more he's given me than how much he's given you. And it developed in these classes of Christians within the church in Corinth that some people said, oh, I'm really spiritual. Look how much God has given me. And you're not very spiritual. You're kind of second-class Christian. And they're failing to defer to one another. And interestingly, even there, Paul didn't say, okay, all the holy people split off from all the unholy people. No, what he said was, reform that church from the inside. You see that it's messy, You want to change it, you love it from within. He envisions this body with many parts, many members, and he compares it to a human body in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. I've underlined those words in my Bible. In my Bible. Th- those parts that seem weaker are indispensable to the body. And those parts of the body that we think as less honorable, we bestow the greater honor that are unpresentable. We bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So what Paul's saying there is that there may be some people in the assembly that look like feet. I hope none of us are that. Well, guess what? They are necessary. And others that are like a spleen. You say, well, that's that's necessary too. All the different parts of the body are absolutely critical to the human physiological body's functioning. And so it is with the church. All the different parts of the church are necessary to our flourishing. The church is unlike any other organization that I know of in this. It welcomes single moms like Karina, who apparently have nothing much to offer and who have a mess in their lives. It welcomes them and says, hey, come on in, you have a part here. And it welcomes people like us who have messes in our lives but just have much vaster resources than Karina to be able to hide our messes from other people. That's the church. It says wherever you are, whatever your mess might be, you are most welcome right here. Not only are you welcome here, but you have value here. You can receive and you can give here because as we like to say it, every person matters in the body of Christ. I mean, who does this? There's no business that says the weaker, more dispensable parts of the business are to be held up in honor. Does any business do that? There's no governmental agency that says those who are disabled are held up in special honor. No, it's only in the church that those who are less presentable, those who are 
messier. Those who seemingly would have less honor are treated with greater honor. Now, the Bible goes even further than that. It says in verse 24, and the presentable parts need no special treatment. Wow. So the less presentable parts get held up with honor, and those presentable parts, whatever that means, get no special treatment. I think what it means is the executive team gets no special treatment. I think it means that wealthy businessmen get no special treatment. I think it means that the beautiful and the highly educated get no special treatment. I think it means that pastors get no special treatment because there are two places where the ground is always level. The ground is always level at the foot of the cross and the ground must always be level at the door of the church. That the presentable parts and the unpresentable parts find equality before our great God and before this assembly. A young man that I've been friends with over many years has Down syndrome and he stutters severely. And as is the case tragically for many people with a number of disabilities, they get shuffled around from job to job. And the deal with this young man, Tal, is uh, he's a very hard worker and he's extremely loyal, but he just doesn't have the social graces that most people have. And as a result, he goes from one part-time job at one convenience store to another part-time job at another grocery store and on and on. He just can't keep a job because he just doesn't have the same social graces. But it's interesting, he does have a place where he finds equality. The men in his church in Mobile, Alabama, invite him to be a part of the church softball team. And he's given special treatment on that softball diamond. Even if sometimes he forgets the rules, the guys at this church softball league, unlike many church softball leagues, understand that there's something more important than winning. Can I get an amen? Okay, there's something more important than winning. And so they give him special treatment from time to time. And he's invited to participate in the church choir on a week-in and week-out basis, even though he has no vocal range. And that church's sound technician must be some kind of wizard back there to mask his voice. But he loves belting it out week after week because, I tell you, he loves Christ. And he loves his church. And he's so deeply blessed by being a part of that church when he doesn't get to be a part of other places in his community. Now, who else is blessed by that? The rest of the church is blessed by it. Because when the less presentable parts of the body get an opportunity to contribute, we get an opportunity to learn from them. And in the process, God actually turns it into a beautiful whole that is not based on the few and the proud and the skilled, but on the humble and the many. And this recognition that all of us have a place in God's economy. It's not for the few and the proud. It's for the many and the humble. A common statement these days is, I, I love Jesus. I just don't really care for the church. And I get that. I've heard it many times. And I love Jesus a lot more than the church too. But the church is his bride. So we do well to seek to love it. 
I love the way Pastor Erwin McManus puts it. He's at an inner city church in Los Angeles, and he writes, when you come to God, you discover that he is perfect. When you come to Christian community, you discover that God's people are not. And even so, the spotless Son of God got dirty in order to make us clean. He took on our filth in order to give us his purity. The church is the beloved mess that belongs to Jesus. And it's really easy to complain about her, but it's really noble to commit to helping her grow. For Jesus intends that we would become a unity in the midst of our diversity. First, we are a mess. And then second, we are to become a unity in the midst of our diversity. We like to make these statements like, variety is the spice of life. Have you ever heard that? We don't actually believe that though, do we? I, I mean, we like to hang out with the same people. We like to go to the same restaurants. We like to hang with the same people that hold the same political opinions as us. We like to hang out with the same people that hold the same religious persuasions as us. We, we like to be sure that people look like us and talk like us and act like us. And if we're not really, really careful, we can segregate ourselves in such a way that we have no influence. And what Jesus does, he enters in and he interrupts all that and he says, no, I actually like diversity and I like it when there's different kinds of people within the church that intermingle and they offer something different for the world to see that even though they disagree on a number of secondary issues, they agree on the main stuff and they seek to love each other in spite of their differences. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here in verse 13. Take a look at this. It says, For in one Spirit, in one Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Greeks. And Greeks is a catch-all here for the whole Roman Empire, many different nations. Whether it be Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many different members. So what you have here in the church is Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, working together, intermingling well within the body of Christ. And boy, it can't get much different than that. Because in the first century world, these groups hated each other. You've got to understand that, that when Jesus came in and he redeemed these people, they had nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. Because Greeks and Romans treated Jews as second-class citizens. They didn't have a vote within the Roman Empire. They were second-class citizens. And the whole structure of the Roman Empire was organized against the Jews. And so, understandably, many Jews hated the Greeks. They hated the Romans. They wanted to revolt against them. And many of them sought to do so. And then Christ comes in and he says, guess what? You're no longer merely a Jew. You're no longer merely a Greek. You're no longer merely a Syrian. You are a Christian. You are a beloved child of God, united by this one Holy Spirit that you have drank. You ingested the Holy Spirit, and now there is something so much bigger about you than your ethnic or political or economic markers. Wow! In this culture, there was slavery. And regularly, Jews became slaves of Romans. And then over the course of time, over the coming 
dozens and then hundreds of years, what happened is the church would come together and slavery would be eradicated in these communities because that's the effect of the gospel when we recognize that we are one new man by the Holy Spirit. When you confess Christ as Lord and Savior, this is what happened. God came into you. He regenerated you. He gave you a new heart. And the Holy Spirit then comes to dwell within you. And then the centerpiece of your identity becomes, I am a child of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit in me touches the Spirit in you. And that's bigger than anything that previously separated us. Can you believe then that still today, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours in America. Can you believe it? A we as a church would say, no, we want something different. And our young people, God bless them, are saying, we want something different than that. And when the church says, we are united in spite of our diversity, the Holy Spirit brings us together, that is powerful for changing the world. Hear me now. Unity amidst our diversity is possible because of the Trinity that binds us together. It is the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were forever in union with Himself from before the very foundations of the world. And then He brings us unity in the midst of our diversity. It's by the Trinity that that is possible. And heaven shouts with joy when it happens in the church. Think of how you've done this for me. Okay, I came here as a rowdy Colorado Buffaloes fan. And you all forgave me, and you love me in spite of that. And now I've become a Huskers fan too, okay? You can be both. Unity amidst diversity. All right. That's a weak example, but... I, I mean, so, some of you are in these life groups, and you say, oh, I wish I could just be in life groups where everyone is the same age and stage of life as me. Don't wish for that. That life group where you have married and divorced people, where you have single folks, and you got widowed folks, you got, you got folks with young kids, that's a science lab of discovery. That's a science lab of discovery, uh, understanding the, the workings of God through the diversity of his church, and it's a beautiful thing when the body of Christ comes together like that. It's messy, but it's an instrument for our growth. The local church is a messy community, united by the Holy Spirit and bonded through the instrument of suffering. Let me just review here. There are at least three reasons that many people don't want anything to do with the local church. First, as you go week in and week out, you rub shoulders with people who are really messy. Second, as you go to the local church, you rub shoulders each week with people who are different than you. And as you go to church week in and week out, you rub shoulders with people who are hurting, people who are suffering, people who are brokenhearted, people who are deeply in need of prayer. And as you rub shoulders well with those folks, the truth is, sometimes people who are really hurting, people who are really messy, they can suck the wind out of you, right? Let's just put it on the table. When I'm really messy, I suck the wind out of Susie. It's just a fact. We do that to each other. That's a reality. But part of the beauty of the local church, part of the countercultural force of the local church is when you are healthy, you have something to give to those who are weak. And when you are weak, you can receive something from those who are healthy. And there's a beauty when that happens reciprocally, 
When those who have something to give, gives to those who are weak, and vice versa, and back and forth. And it's just this beautiful circle of reciprocity, which is really healthy for us. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He says, if one member suffers, verse 26, all suffer together. And we've had some tragedies in this church in the past year. And we've suffered together through those tragedies. And God has done a miraculous work to bind us closer together as we've suffered together. This is part of his providential will. That when one of us is healthy, we give to those who are less healthy. And that's part of the reason we have prayer partners up here at the end of the service. Because we never say that any of us is above the need for help from others. As one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. We go out of our way for each other. And the final word in this definition is commitment. Commitment. I've had people ask me a number of different times, Adrian, I, I love Jesus, but do, do I have to be a part of the local church? Maybe you've had people ask you that. I, I always find it funny that they would ask me. It's like, do you know what I do for a living? What do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> yes! And, and tithe to it regularly. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> Commit yourself to the local church. Because nothing fights off the tsunami of consumerism like commitment. Consumerism is the most corrosive thing to our souls. Consumerism is the most corrosive thing to our souls. And it is commitment that fights off consumerism. When you're in a life group and you see someone else is hurting, but you choose to stay the course and commit some of your additional emotional and mental resources to them in the midst of their pain, that fosters commitment. It's in the local church that we foster encouragement and challenge and accountability. And through that, we grow. If you want to commit to this local church, we have a membership class coming up on May 7th. However, you might commit to this local church even without membership. And, and the way we would say that we would commit to the local church here is by getting onto our pathway of discipleship. Our pathway to discipleship is very, very simple. There's many churches you go in and you're not sure what to do because they're asking you to do so much. This is all we want you to do in order to get onto the pathway of discipleship. And I promise you, if you do these three things, you will grow nearer to Christ. Outside in the lobby though this morning, we have this ministry expo that exposes you to more ways to get onto mission and more ways to get into community. But here's our basic pathway. You'll see it in a circle up on the screen. I pray... We pastors and leaders, elders in this church pray that everyone in here would be a part of three simple environments. One large group environment like this where you come to church on a week in and week out basis and you grow in the truth of the gospel. The truth of the scriptures. The truth that is Jesus himself. And the gospel message that we are saved and we live out of that. We live from that. We are saved by the grace of God and we live out of that. So some large group gathering here on Sunday morning, be it in this room or in the venue, or with the bilingual service, we are growing in the truth of the gospel. But that's not enough. We need a community where we're encouraging each other and challenging each other. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. It is critically important that we're all a part of a life group. 
a small group community, or it could be a men's group or a women's group, small group of community where you're accountable to each other. You're encouraging each other. You're praying for each other. You're challenging each other. Because that can't happen in this room the way it can happen with 12 or 14 others in someone's living room over pie and coffee. There's power in that when you apply the Word of God in a small group. And then finally, we were made for mission. We're not made to just sit and soak. We need to be on mission. And if we don't have a mission, if we don't have some kind of service, we get stale. We need a mission to be involved with. And for many of us, it's going to be a mission inside the church. Could be with E-Free Kids. Could be leading a life group. Could be greeters or ushers. Could be with some outreach community. It could be with our international student friendship program or a healthcare clinic or any number of different missions that we have. But we recognize we need some kind of ministry in order to get spiritually fit. Those who are not serving get spiritually fat. Those who serve get spiritually fit. And that's gospel truth. And so what we would encourage you to do if you're committed to, to this local church, you're seeking to grow in commitment, you say, how do I do one of each of those? One large gathering to grow in truth and gospel, one small gathering to grow in community with a life group, and one mission. How do I do one of each of those before I do two of any of those? The last thing we want to do in this church is to make you spiritually busy. What we want is spiritual depth. And if we do one of each of those before two of any of those, I guarantee you in the next year, you will grow spiritually in the likeness of Christ. Let me give one final example before I close. Our men's ministry leadership team realized they wanted to move us more in the direction of this vision for that pathway of discipleship that I just noted. And so they have a great ministry they call Men's Forge that meets, and on a weekly basis they have a larger gathering in which Pastor Brian or someone else provides excellent teaching there on a week-in and week-out basis that's relevant for men. And then they break off into small groups where they really get to know each other and challenge each other. And for some of those, that becomes their men's life group, if you will. But they recognize that's not enough for men, that men are made for mission. Men need a service. Men need to be difference makers. And so a year ago, they started a ministry called Men in Action. And Men in Action started on day one, I think it was in May of last year. It might have been April of last year. And on day one, though, they started with 17 care teams over 65 men caring for single moms, widows, and widowers within this church body. And on a monthly basis, these guys take out three hours on a single Saturday to care for a single widow or a widower or a single parent, that same person to develop relationship on a month-in and month-out basis and to make a difference in that person's life. Our goal from this ministry is that every single parent and every widow or widower in this church that needs ongoing help from this church would get it on a consistent basis. That's our goal. So we had a lady in that ministry, and she gave permission to share this story. I'll never share anyone's personal story well without getting someone's permission, but this woman's named Patty Shoemate, and Patty broke her ankle. And because she broke her ankle, she couldn't work for seven or eight weeks. In addition, uh, she couldn't put any weight on her foot for eight weeks. And so the men in action team, led by a man named Jason, immediately entered in and contacted, uh, contacted Patty and said, how can we help? And they joined forces with our deacon and deaconess ministry, which receives the offerings though, that you give on the first uh, Sundays of the month. And they, they joined forces together and said, how do we care for Patty's needs duh, during this time? 
And as Patty comes home from the hospital, she's greeted in her home by this ramp. Because she's not able to put any weight on her leg for eight weeks, the men in action team mobilized in action and said, you know what, Patty? We're going to take care of you. We're going to get you into your home. We're going to surround ourselves around you such that you know in this assembly, you're not going through this period of suffering by yourself. That's the church. That's the church. It's an instrument of blessing to people like Karina in Ecuador. It's an instrument of blessing to young men with disabilities like Tao in South Alabama. It's an instrument of God's blessing to people like Patty and to so many of us here in Kearney, Nebraska. And Lord knows she's messy. Lord knows she's full of all kinds of diversity. Lord knows she's full of all kinds of suffering. But she is still God's plan A for transforming the world. She is still God's plan A for transforming our lives, for transforming our communities. And so we are wise to commit to serving her. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you left earth and you ascended to heaven, you didn't leave your people without witness. You gave your people your spirit that we would be binded together as one, united by your spirit, purchased by the blood of Christ. And so we are. We thank you in addition to giving your spirit, you gave us the church. And the church is made to be this incredible instrument of power and blessing in our lives and growth for the community around us such that all the world would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Father, we ask that you would use us in this local assembly to make a difference in one another's lives, to make a difference in our community, that we would be this unstoppable force that seeks to advance your kingdom right where we live. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen.